Oh, I don't have, whoa. Okay, I'm on. Well, good morning. Good to see everyone. I'm, I'm in the groove now of saying good afternoon, because we meet at 4.30 in the afternoon, I'm, and sometimes I still say good morning, but it's hard to get into that. So good morning. Uh, nice to see everyone. My name is Josh Golaxon. I am the church planting pastor of Livingstone Church uh, in Oshkosh, and we were here for a couple years at Emmaus Road, and it is nice to look out and see so many new faces. Uh, really encouraged to see what the Lord is doing here after uh, we all left and took a bunch of people with us. So it's good to be with you. Uh, good to be here to bring God's word this morning. Thank you, Dan, for having me come and share. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to your people. God, that you would show us your glory. That you would encourage our hearts. That you would help us see who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. It's his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are going to be in Colossians chapter 4. Uh, it's printed there in your worship guides, and if you have a Bible, you can turn there uh, to Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. <clears throat> well, a few weeks ago, I was uh, having kind of one of those crisis moments as a parent, and I was thinking about my oldest, Lily, who's now 13. I was thinking, in just a few years, she's going to be moving away from home, and she'll be out on her own, and I was picturing getting a text from her after she had been gone for a week, and she says, hey dad, you know, things are going well, I, uh, I got to my apartment, and the self-driving truck pulled up with all my furniture, and I went out, and I grabbed all my furniture, and came back in the house, and got it all set up, and then I uh, went online, and applied for all my classes, and I'm done with my first week of classes, and you know, the, the automated uh, TA graded all my papers, and I got all the information back, and then, well, I, you know, I got hungry, so I had to go get some groceries, so I went to the new Amazon Go store, and just walked in and swiped my phone, and I got all my groceries, and I went home, and, you know, cooked some food, and it's been such a great week. I haven't talked to a single person. I haven't seen anybody. It's just, I'm really enjoying this new life on my own. Well, it sounds like a ridiculous example, uh, but I was reading an article a few weeks ago in TechCrunch.com about the new Amazon Go stores. Uh, the one opened up in Seattle. You can go in and scan your phone, and it's all uh, cameras, and they know what you pick and what you put in your cart, and you leave, you swipe your thing, and you're done. You don't have to talk to anybody. And we were, we were discussing this in our community group a few weeks ago, and kind of what the implications of this are. And in this article, the author was talking about the philosophical problems that he has with this model. And his philosophical problems were things like, um, you know, cameras and intrusion and, and privacy issues. And I'm reading this going, I have some different philosophical problems with this type of model. Is anonymity what we really want? Is social isolation healthy for us? Is it healthy for us physically? Is it healthy for us spiritually? Is it healthy for us emotionally? 
And then I was reminded of a New York Times article that appeared on Christmas Eve this this past year, How Social Isolation is Killing Us. Some of you may have seen this article. It's a doctor who's writing about a patient that he had who was, who was dying, and he asked if there was anyone he could call, anyone who, would, who could come and see him. And he, he had no friends. He had no family. He said maybe he had a niece down south, but he hadn't talked to her in years. And the doctor says, for me, the sadness of his death was surpassed only by the sadness of his solitude. I wondered whether his isolation was a driving force of his premature death, not just an unhappy circumstance. And he goes on to talk about how social isolation is a growing epidemic that since the 80s, it's doubled from 20% to now 40%. About a third of Americans older than 65 now live alone. He talks about the risks of heart disease and how all these things have, have gotten worse. And then the author of the article says, A great paradox of our hyper-connected digital age is that we seem to be drifting apart. Increasingly, however, research confirms our deepest intuition. Human connection lies at the heart of human well-being. It's up to all of us, doctors, patients, neighborhoods, and communities, to maintain bonds where they're fading and create ones where they haven't existed. I love this. Research confirms our deepest intuition. (laughs) Really? Like, we need research to tell us this? Our deepest intuition that human connection lies at the heart of human well-being. And then I would add to that, but sin seeks to isolate us from God and one another. My main idea this morning is that God has created us to live in community with him and with one another, where we serve him and we serve God one another. We just did a four-week series at Living Stone where we looked at our vision statement. Our vision statement is a community of Christ followers who are called to know, love, and serve God and others. Uh, So we looked first at that community aspect. We looked at Acts chapter 2, and then we looked at knowing, loving, and serving God in three different parts, and we were taking all of those, the know, love, and serve sermons out of Colossians, different parts in Colossians. So kind of the know, love, and serve, the head, heart, and hands element. So the serving is, is the hands. How do we serve one another? How do, we, how do we live that out? And so this was kind of the, this was the fourth uh, sermon in that series. So I wanted to share that with you guys and talk about how God has called us as churches and as a church uh, to be a part of serving God and serving others. So let's go uh, to the text. This is Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. 
He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We're going to look at this passage in two sections. First, we're going to look at the posture of serving, the posture of serving, pray, speak, and walk. Paul begins here, continue steadfastly in prayer. This word for continue steadfastly in the Greek, it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2, where they was talking about how they were devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, to the prayers. Being devoted to God, being devoted here to prayer, continuing steadfastly. And then being watchful. This is a, a great reminder of how we are called to pray and what manner we are called to pray. This idea of being watchful is used throughout the New Testament Matthew 24, Jesus talks about not knowing the day or the hour that the Son of Man is coming. He says to stay awake, be watchful. Matthew 25, the the ten virgins who five bring their oil and five don't. In that parable, Jesus also says, watch, you don't know the day or the hour. Stay awake, stay alert, be watchful, continue steadfastly. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed, he came to his disciples, he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so you could not, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think we all need this reminder, don't we? If you're like me, prayer can be a struggle. It can be a challenge to continue steadfastly, to continue praying for something maybe that you've been praying for, for for months, for years. Continue steadfastly. Be watchful. But prayer does not need to be something that we do just in isolation. It's not something that needs to be hard because we're trying to do it only on our own. We were just reminded earlier of the, the congregational prayer 
that we had that time together to pray, to go before the Lord together. We should obviously be praying as individual believers in the secret place, going to the Lord on our own. But Paul here is writing to the church. He's asking them to pray, to come together, to continue steadfastly in prayer. I think there's something about strength in numbers, especially when it comes to prayer, when it comes to us going before the Lord together as a body and interceding for things. So what is the focus here of Paul's prayer? Why is Paul asking for prayer? Verse 3, he says, Pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word. What does this mean here, to open up a door for the word? I think it implies that there are closed doors, right? If he's asking for a door to be opened, it must mean that there are closed doors. I think there are closed doors in a couple different ways. Uh, There may be closed doors on individual people's hearts, right? We pray for God to open up people's hearts so that they would know him. And I think we see this in some other places in the New Testament, but there there are regions that are closed, right? There are places that are closed off to the gospel, uh, I've been to a country in the world, I'm not going to name this country if you want to talk to me about it later, I, I would be willing to talk with you about it, and, and I know I've talked with others who've had similar experiences in other places, but I've been to a city multiple times where every time I fly into that city and, and get out of the plane, and immediately I feel the weight, I feel the darkness, the oppression that is over that city, and there's, there's something there. I'm not this like crazy, charismatic, you know, guy. Like, but I feel that weight. I feel the darkness. And, and I know others have had similar experiences in different parts of the world. There are regions that are, that are dark and closed off to the gospel. Pray. As you pray for missionaries, as you pray for the world, pray to that effect that God would open up doors for the gospel to go forth in those areas that are closed off, in those areas that are spiritually dark and oppressed. Then he prays that they would declare the mystery of Christ. Throughout Colossians, Paul has been talking about this mystery, this mystery that was hidden for ages and generations. It's the good news that the door has been opened to the Gentiles, that it's not just a message for ethnic Jews, that it's a message for everyone. There is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Male or female, it's all one in Christ. The gospel goes out to everyone. So pray that that door would be opened, that the mystery of the gospel would be declared. And then he says in verse 4, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Again, there's this idea of, of this message that was hidden, that was unknown, that was unclear, and now it's, it's, being, it's going out, it's being made known, and it's being made clear and revealed to people. So pray to that effect that God's word would go out. So we have prayer. Then we have walking. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Paul has a similar statement in Ephesians 5. Make the the most use of the time, or some might translate it, redeem the time. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Watch your walk and watch your talk because people are watching, right? People are watching our walk and our talk as Christians. The world can't stand hypocritical Christians. 
and rightfully so, right? If we say this is what we believe, if we say this is a, how, we are, how we ought to live, but we walk in a different manner, we don't walk according to how we say we live, then the world ought to say, well, what's up with that? So our walk in verse 5, our talk in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And again, just notice how all of this is, it's outward focus, it's, it's, it's evangelism, it's making God's word known to people. Our, our talk should be gracious, it should be seasoned with salt. We should represent Christ in our speech, in the way we talk with people. We should be kind to people in our words. We should be generous, gracious. Well, how are we doing at trusting the Lord with our relationships, with these things? Are we prayerful? Are we watchful? Are we thankful? In, verse, in, uh, in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul reminds us that the power to live this way doesn't come from us. This isn't pull up your bootstraps Christianity. The power comes from the new life that we have been given in Christ. We have already been raised up with Christ. We see the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. And then just before this section, there's the rules for the Christian household. So you have marriage and parenting and work relationships. Paul's explaining that all these relationships and all of our social relationships, we need to rely on the Lord together as we seek to have an impact, as we seek to pray for doors to be opened in our neighborhoods and in our communities. These things must be bathed in prayer, and God must be the one who opens the doors for us. We come then to the, the last section of this letter you have the ESV, the heading there might be something like final greetings. Uh, I think you come to the end of a letter if you've just read three chapters and a little bit more, and you, you come to this section, final greetings, you're kind of like, okay, here's all, these, here's all these names of all these people I don't know, here's all these places, I'm just going to kind of plow through this just to check off my box, right, and to say that I, I did my reading for the day or whatever. But I think if we do that, if we just plow through this last section, I think we miss a beautiful picture of Christian community. We miss a beautiful picture of all these people who were involved in this church. The last section here that we'll look at is the people of serving. So we looked at the posture of serving. Now we see the people of serving. There are 12 names listed here in these verses, including Paul. Why is this significant? Why this huge, long list of names? We were discussing this at our community group several weeks ago, and we kind of came to the conclusion that partly this was to show that the emphasis wasn't just on Paul. Uh, it's, it's more than Paul who was going around planting churches. He's showing how all of these other people were involved. Uh, maybe you've heard of the Clapham sect or the Clapham saints. The 17 men and women who were vital to the work of abolishing the slave trade in England. Uh, most of you probably know the name William Wilberforce. Uh, William Wilberforce, he was the Paul of the Clapham sect. He was kind of the guy who, who gets all the glory, right? He's the one who the, the books are written about. He's the one that the movies are made about. 
but names like Hannah Moore, Charles Simeon, Catherine Hankey, Henry Thornton, and Thomas Buxton, people who were brewers, authors, pastors, members of parliament, evangelists, and bankers. One source says, they were powerfully bound together by their shared moral and spiritual values, by their religious mission and social activism, and by their love for each other. One person could not single-handedly abolish the slave trade in England, and Paul could not single-handedly pastor and shepherd and plant churches all across the Mediterranean world. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. He praises God for those who labored alongside him as fellow servants. And that's what we all are here, right? We're all fellow servants. This church wasn't planted in the first place. This church will not continue to exist because Dan is working 80-hour weeks and just doing everything and going crazy. It takes multiple people. It takes people using their gifts. It takes people stepping up and serving, knowing, loving, and serving God and others. I know that's the kind of church that this has been. And Dan, you've modeled that. You've led well in that. And that's the kind of church that we are desiring to be in Oshkosh. We are encouraged by what we've seen here. We're encouraged to follow in that example And again, this is the kind of church that Paul is describing here at the end of this letter. He starts off by introducing us to Tychicus. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. A beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant. I love that Paul uses this word, fellow servant. Paul's saying, I am a servant. (laughs) I am the one who has been going around. I'm writing these letters. I'm doing all these things, but I'm a servant. Just like Tychicus, I'm a servant. If you read Paul's letters, in some of Paul's letters, he starts off, Paul, an apostle, right? In some of his his stronger letters where he needs to kind of come in and clean things up, he starts off, Paul, an apostle. The apostles come into town, you better better listen up. But in some of his other letters, in Romans, in Philippians, in Titus, how does he start off? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. This idea of of being a servant is, is huge in the ministry. It's huge in the church. And it starts with the leaders being examples of that. But we're all fellow servants. Just because we stand up here and preach and and it's our full-time job doesn't mean we're any less servants than anyone else in the church who is serving the Lord. Paul sent Tychicus to encourage their hearts. I love this. It's so easy to get discouraged in our lives, isn't it? It's easy to to just kind of isolate ourselves and things aren't going my way. I'm just going to close myself off. But we need encouragement. We need encouragement from each other. We need encouragement from the body 
That's why we meet in community groups. That's why we have men's and women's time. That's why we do things outside of just Sunday morning. We come together to spend time together, to encourage each other, to build each other up in the faith. We're going to skip over uh, some of the, the next list of names here. Look to, to verse 12, Epaphras. Epaphras is my favorite one on this whole section. I remember as a new Christian, I was reading Colossians, and in the NIV it says, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. And I wrestled in high school, and just the intensity that goes into that, and, and this picture of, of wrestling in prayer. And just thinking, what does that look like? like what does that look like to, to wrestle with the Lord in prayer for something? Our brother Bruce, we talked about you at our community group a few weeks ago. We were asking, what does it look like to wrestle in prayer? And James Lima said, you know, all the people who were praying for Bruce, that was wrestling. All of us just going before the Lord on behalf of you and your life. What a beautiful picture. But should it have to be a situation like that all the time? Praise God that we were able to wrestle in prayer for you. But it doesn't have to be that, right? I mean, just daily, are we wrestling in prayer? Are we going before the Lord for the needs of our children, our friends, our spouses? This is a huge challenge. But we're encouraged here. Epaphras, he's wrestling in prayer Struggling, as it says in the ESV. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. What is he struggling for? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. I love Colossians 1.28. This is like one of my new favorite verses and something I'm trying to be faithful to pray for other people. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal, that we would be presented mature in Christ. And Epaphras is wrestling in prayer that we would stand mature in our faith. So maturity, the second part, is fully assured in all the will of God. This word, fully assured in the Greek, it's a perfect passive participle, okay? And if you're like, I have no idea what that means, that's okay, okay? It's passive, which I think is the thing I really want to emphasize, meaning it's something that you don't do yourself, right? You don't get fully assured in the will of God because you're just trying really hard. Epaphras is praying that you would be fully assured that God would assure you that God would do it. You are the passive recipient of that. And it's a perfect, which is not used that often. A perfect is, um, so if we have like a past, right, it's just like a dot, something happened in the future. We have a future, it's an arrow going off into the future, something God's going to do. A perfect is a, is a dot, something that happened in the past with an arrow pointing into the future, this is saying this is something God has already accomplished and it has ongoing effects, ongoing consequences for your life since the time that it happened. Be fully assured in all the will of God, meaning 
Know that it is God who has brought you to himself. You don't have to worry about how do I know God's will for my life and how do I figure out all these. You can be fully assured in all the will of God because of what God has already done for you. And that, will, that is a continuation based on what he has already done. And you were a passive recipient of that. So it's the finished work of Christ that continues on, on our behalf. Again, I want to challenge us. I want to challenge myself. I want to challenge you to pray, to wrestle in prayer for yourself and for other people. Let's jump down to verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. I love this. It doesn't say anything about you know, who Nympha is or, or what she's been doing, but I'm sure Nympha probably put up with a lot of shenanigans, right? She's hosting a church in her house. She's probably got to cook all the food. Everybody comes over for dinner and, and worship, and then they just leave and don't pick up after themselves. You know, she's got to do everything, right? She's serving the flock with her gifts of hospitality. And you know, just the fact that, that she's mentioned here is so important. It shows that every little detail, every single person is important to God. Every single person is important in the life of the church. Paul goes on, verse 16, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. See that you also read the letter from Laodicea. This idea of, of reading the scriptures together, of reading, of encouraging, of being together and worshiping together. And then verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul's writing this letter from prison, telling them to remember his chains. In Acts 28, at the end of Acts, the, the last account we have of Paul's life, he's in Rome. He's before the Jewish leaders, and he's explaining the reason that he had been arrested and brought to Rome. He said, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. The hope of Israel was the reason why Paul was in prison. The hope of Israel was the reason why Paul labored and did the things that he did for the churches and for the gospel. The hope of Israel is the hope of the world, the only hope for Jews and Gentiles alike. He is the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I think one of the most powerful descriptions of Jesus as a servant is found in Paul's letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes how believers in Christ should be of the same mind, okay, the head, have the same love, heart, and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, and to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, hands serving. He then tells us that Jesus... Though he was God himself, he emptied himself and took on the form 
of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now think about this for a minute. The creator of the universe took on flesh and came and became a servant. It's not because he just thought, well, this would be cool, right, to like experience what it would be like to be a human, to live in human flesh. But it's because we had a problem that we couldn't deal with on our own. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, a death that you and I deserved to die. Death on a Roman cross, tortured as a criminal for a crime that he did not commit so that you and I could go free. The sinless Lamb of God became a sacrifice in our place. The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you and for me. But it wasn't just, wasn't only in order to save us. It was to bring glory to his name. Paul goes on in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, we are called to serve God and others, to live lives in community with each other, not in isolation. And the only way that we can fulfill this calling is to follow Jesus together so that the world might see that he is Savior and Lord, that every knee might bow and every tongue might confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. God, we are reminded by this letter to this early church of what it looked like to live in community, to pray, to serve, to walk with you, to lay down our lives for one another. As Christ, you laid down your life for us. Lord, strengthen us, encourage us, help us to live out our calling to serve you and to serve one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.